The Transmission, episode 72, October 3rd, 2009. When we stole all this in the first place, I mean, people need food. They need medical supplies. They need shocking amounts of pornography. Aloha from the Island Lost fans. You are tuned into the transmission. This is a podcast devoted to the show Lost on ABC. I'm Jen. And I'm Ryan. And we're back once again to revisit the next three episodes from season three of Lost. We'd like to start with a hearty congratulations to Michael Emerson, who won the Emmy for Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Series on the very same day that we posted our last podcast. If you remember, Terry O'Quinn took home the same award last year. Absolutely. So well-deserved accolades for both of those gentlemen. Michael Emerson was graceful as always, and certainly we've been a huge fan of his work. Also, as a programming note, we fans here in Honolulu are looking forward to a series of special lost events that are being held in conjunction with the Hawaii International Film Festival. Specifically on Saturday, October 17th, there's going to be a series of master classes on Lost during the day that's going to focus on everything from producing and directing the show to set design, costumes, and props. Then that night, a special evening with Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse at the Royal Hawaiian Theater. Lost has partnered with a Hawaii International Film Festival before, and those panel discussions were great, but I love that there's basically an all-day Lost program this year, which is, of course, the last year that Lost will be in production, and, well, you just can't get too much lost. I totally agree. So we're really looking forward to drinking it all in. And because we know that many of you can't be here for these lost events, we of course plan on sharing as much as we can. But what that means for our podcast is our next show, or at least our next scheduled show for October 18th, might be preempted or delayed if we're fortunate enough to have stuff ready to share from the Hawaii International Film Festival's Lost program instead. We'll play it by ear, though, and we hope that you'll enjoy whatever we can bring you. We definitely appreciate those of you who are sticking around with us for our Season 3 review, but, you know, it's always great to have new stuff to talk about. New stuff is good, so stay tuned to the transmission for further developments. But speaking of which, we should get back to our regular show, so here's how it's going to break down. We'll quickly recap the next three episodes of Season 3 which are episodes 7, 8, and 9, and then we'll share our take. Then we'll hear from you in uh, You All, Everybody, in our feedback segment. We'll share another song from The Other's Lost Band. And finally, we'll cover the last two weeks of Lost production here on the island in the Forward Cabin. You ready? Let's get lost. Okay, so our next three episodes begin with Not in Portland. Juliet is sitting on a beach watching a sunset. She walks into a drab building, passes Ethan in the hall, and wakes up her sister to give her a shot. Turns out they're in Miami. She goes to a medical center where she works to steal more things when she is walked in on by her ex, Edmund Burke. He shows up with his new girlfriend. Juliet's phone goes off and he manages to find her. He sends her away, humiliated. Juliet then goes to meet with Middle East Bioscience, which is trying to recruit her for her fertility work. We meet Dr. Richard Alpert, who says, we think you're special. She says that her ex-husband won't let her go unless he's hit by a bus or something. She says that she's not a leader, she's a mess, and leaves. But when she gets home to her sister, her sister says she's pregnant. Juliet tells Edmund the good news just before he's hit by a bus. Ethan and Alpert come to see Juliet. She remembers what she said about a bus 
class, but Albert says she's just shook up. Albert asks her to give them just six months and then she'll be back before her sister gives birth. She asks if her sister could come, but he says, um, we're not quite in Portland. Back on the island once again, Jack yells, Kate, damn it, run! She and Sawyer take off and in the operating room, Tom asks Juliet what to do. She tells him to go get Kate and Sawyer back. Jack says he'll let Ben die if he does, but Juliet says he won't and she also tells Jack that they're on another island. Jack tells Tom that Juliet had a plan to kill Ben, so Tom kicks Juliet out. But Ben wakes up and asks for Juliet. He and Juliet talk. She tells Jack to finish the surgery and she's going to help his friends escape. Sure enough, Kate and Sawyer cannot find a boat to get back to their island and are chased into the jungle. But Alex shows up and she says that she has a boat. The only thing is, though, she wants to rescue Carl first. So they go and take out Aldo and find Carl in room 23, drugged and watching a psychedelic slideshow. They climb into a canoe, but Danny shows up. Juliet shows up and shoots him and then tells them to go, but Alex has to stay. Juliet calls in, gives the walkie to Kate, and Kate tells Jack the story that he told her on the day of the crash. Jack makes Kate promise not to come back for him, and they push off. Juliet goes back to Jack, who successfully finished the surgery on Ben and removed his tumor. Jack asks what Ben told her. She tells him that she's been on the island for three years and that Ben said if she let him live, he'd let her go home. Moving on to flashes before your eyes, Hurley and Charlie are raiding Sawyer's tent when Desmond tells them to come with him to Locke and Saeed. They tell them that Echo is dead and Locke says the island killed him. Suddenly, Desmond takes off running and jumps into the ocean he rescues Claire from drowning. Charlie asks how he knew, and Hurley says he sees the future. Charlie and Hurley decide to get Desmond drunk. Desmond says no at first, but he recognizes the bottle of McCutcheon, and they end up getting blasted. (laughs) They ask him about Claire and the lightning strike, and he declines to explain. Charlie calls him a coward, so Desmond jumps him and says he doesn't want to know what happened when he turned the key. We return to the hatch collapse and the failsafe, and Desmond wakes up on the floor of his flat with Penny, where he fell while painting. He hears beeping that sounds like the hatch computer, but it's just the microwave, and he says he's experiencing deja vu. He then goes to see her dad, Charles Widmore, who offers him a desk job, but he says he wants to marry Penny. Widmore pulls out a bottle of McCutcheon, but says that to share it with Desmond would be a waste because Desmond will never be a great man. Desmond storms out and sees Charlie playing in the street and asks how he knows him. He says he remembers that it started to rain. Sure enough, it starts to pour. Desmond goes to ask his physicist friend Donovan about time travel. Donovan says that he's crazy and Desmond tries to predict the end of a soccer match and an attack on the bartender but it doesn't happen. Later, he goes to buy a ring for Penny from Mrs. Hawking, here unnamed, but she tells him that he doesn't buy the ring, he doesn't ask Penny to marry him, and ends up on the island instead. They take a walk together, and she points out a man with red shoes. He says he's going to spend the rest of his life with Penny, but she says he's not. Suddenly, the man with the red shoes is killed in a freak construction accident. He asks why she didn't warn him, and she says that the man would have died anyway because the universe had 
has a way of course correcting. He meets up with Penny and they take their marina picture. But when Desmond sees the picture of them, he knows that he couldn't go through with it and breaks up with her right then. She calls him a coward. He goes back to the pub, but there he realizes that he had the wrong night and he thinks that he still can change things. But when the man comes in to hit the bartender, he knocks Desmond out instead. Desmond wakes up back on the island. Back on the beach with Charlie and Hurley, Desmond tells Charlie that when he turned the key, his life flashed before his eyes. Then he saw a flash of Claire, but he was actually saving Charlie from drowning. He previously saw the lightning electrocute Charlie. Basically, Desmond says he's tried to save him twice already, but eventually Charlie is going to die. Mm, And finally, stranger in a strange land. In flashback, Jack is in Thailand where he meets a woman on the beach. He follows her to a tattoo parlor where she says that her gift is seeing who people are and marking them. She says that Jack's a leader but lonely and angry and he makes her tattoo him with that. So her brother brings a gang to his hut on the beach and they beat him up and tell him to leave and that's it. Back on Alcatraz the others move Jack out to the cages where Kate and Sawyer were and put Juliet in his cell. Tom explains that Juliet is in trouble. They let her out to examine Ben and she goes to Jack when Ben's stitches get infected. She says she's in trouble for killing Dan but Jack says he won't help her. Later, the sheriff comes to get Jack and they meet with Juliet and Tom. The sheriff asks Jack if Juliet did indeed have a plan to kill Ben, but Jack says no, he was just trying to turn them against each other. The sheriff asks why Jack is lying, but Jack asks to leave. Later, Jack is visited in his cage by a whole group of people, including Cindy, the long-lost stewardess. She says that they are there to watch, and he sends them away. Later, Alex visits Jack. He asks about Juliet and Alex says that Juliet is facing her verdict. She asks why Jack saved her dad and he says it's because he gave his word. He wants to know whether it's Ben or the sheriff who's in charge. Jack then goes to the operating room and says he'll bring Ben back to good health if they don't execute Juliet. So Ben does commute her sentence but orders her marked. When Juliet brings Jack some food, he asks to see the mark and applies some aloe to it, and she asks Jack why he helped her. He says that Ben told them both that they could go home, and he's going to make sure that he keeps his word. Juliet mentions that the others are going to be leaving Alcatraz to go home. Isabel visits Jack and tells him that his tattoo says he walks amongst us, but he is not one of us. Jack says that's not what it means. Meanwhile, Kate and Sawyer are rowing to safety. Kate tells Sawyer we have to go back, but Sawyer tells her that they have to leave Jack behind, and Carl says Ben will kill them if they do go back. They make camp for the night on the opposite shore, and Carl explains that they took people and kids to give them a better life, and that they only work on Alcatraz, but live on the main island. The next morning, Carl is crying in the forest, and Sawyer tells him to cowboy up and go back for his girl. Kate is upset when she finds out that Sawyer let Carl go, but Sawyer says she just feels guilty for sleeping with him and leaving Jack behind. We close on a montage with big, swelling music. We see the others evacuate. Sawyer and Kate make their way back to the camp, and Alex and Carl have their American Tale moment. (laughs) And And thud. thud. And that's three episodes of Lost from Season 3 in under eight minutes. We'll catch our breath, and when we come back, we'll share our thoughts on these episodes. Alright, so flashback, November 2006. We have to wait three whole months for this interminable 
hiatus that was not caused by the writer strike, right. and they come back in February with not in Portland. How did you like the episode back then, and how did you like it on this rewatch? At the time, it seemed to me that the three month break really broke up the momentum and really caused us to forget a lot of what was going on, mm. and just generally wasn't a really good idea. But now that we're seeing the episodes pretty close together, they actually flow really well this time. Certainly, I think that the strategy they're following now, where they keep the season together, is preferable, certainly. And I definitely remember, and you know, the pacing of this episode isn't exactly fast. In fact, the pacing of the first six episodes were much more pensive, much more ethereal, and I think that kind of annoyed us when they returned after the long break. Also, I remember for this episode, it was like, wait a minute, we had the cage match episodes, can't we get back to the rest of our friends, our favorite characters yeah. back at the beach camp? Where is everybody else? And they were still absent when this episode came back. So we're kind of focusing on a lot of things that annoyed us, but looking back at it now, now, I mean, this was Juliet's episode, our first other flashback, you know, something that we hadn't had before. And I think this was the episode that sold us on Elizabeth Mitchell and her character. It was just great to see an other in such an interesting and sympathetic light. You know, we're introduced to her back in the um, season premiere, but we really don't know much about her. And I think it's kind of a stroke of genius that they give us a story about a, such a complex and interesting woman. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Uh, the others up until this point are still pretty much depicted as either a little odd or a little strange, but certainly more menacing and less human. And that was a real great window into Juliet's character. And I was really struck. I mean, first of all, this is the first appearance of Dr. Alpert or, or Richard Alpert. I'm not sure. Is he a doctor? I or... don't know. Where would he have gone to medical school? I'm not sure if he was a medical doctor because um, Juliet goes out of her way to say Mr. Alpert that's at one true. point. So I think that was at first I was like oh she's dissing him but I think it's because he's not a medical doctor maybe a psychology or something else right and he's probably not a doctor at all um, I mean the character that Richard Alpert is named after is Dr. Alpert so right, maybe right. he just sort of adopted that in any case so he appears and he is recruiting and he says to Juliet I think you're special mm -hmm. and I think that's key I mean we've heard people described as either good or bad or special in this case but you know again going back to Elizabeth Mitchell's character she says you know I, I, I'm not a leader I'm a mess and the one thing that really struck me what they're trying to do with this episode is give us that duality of Juliet's character on the island and specifically in this episode she's kick butt she's strong she's we've seen her in during the cage match episodes with Jack she really knows her place she really knows her strength and plays to them and yet in this flashback she's whimpery she's weak she's humiliated by her ex-husband yeah. she's just very unhappy and without direction I think and I think that uh, duality I mean we've seen him with with other characters but for Juliet a uh, really great direction to go to show both sides she has to be you know there has to be two of her in order for her to do her job she has to be serious and she has to be tough um you know there's that juliet episode the other woman well there's two sides oh, right. of juliet there's the other juliet who's weak and scared and you know i think part of that might have been her parents divorce well but. exactly you went right there what, what occurred to me is we were so frustrated with what juliet's character did at the end of season five right. where she had really kind of demonstrated this strength and had really become such a strong character and then all of a sudden we flash back to her parents getting divorced and she gets all whiny and whimpery and insecure about mm -hmm. her relationship with Sawyer and I'm like where did that come from what a mean turn for her you know it's totally out of character but it's not I mean right. they've shown us as early as this episode not important on yeah the other woman which I forgot about that she can have that insecure side that weak side and we just saw it return it's she kind of returned to form with that uh, hissy fit with Sawyer at the very end so uh, maybe I have a little more 
understanding of uh, what the writers were really tapping into when she did that. And, you know, we, we, we're not sure if we like that our characters do return to their old ways. But um, again, I think I, have, I, I can put up with it better now. Well, Juliet does say something really interesting about Jack. She mm. says, I'm not sure who she says it to, probably um, Mr. Friendly, that sh- um, Jack would never let a patient just die. Oh, right. I mean, she's very confident because she's, she's sort of demonstrating how well she knows his character. But that's not really true. How so? Well, remember back in season one when the the marshal was wounded and um, probably dying right, and, right. and Sawyer went in and he botched shooting him. So so Jack had to go in and, and smother him. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, OK, he, he killed that guy. Um, he, But I mean, that was more of a mercy killing. He yeah. kind of saw the hopelessness of the situation. I'm not sure, though, if that really fits in with what a doctor is supposed to do. Now that you mention it, though, Jack is the guy who got the bright idea to set off Jughead, you know, annihilate everything everyone on the island so you know the jack that we see here in season three who juliet is confident wouldn't hurt a soul um kind of evolved quite a bit to be the person to set off a nuclear device and maybe not be as attached to that hippocratic oath as he's (laughs) as he's supposed to be what did you think of the opening sequence where juliet's on the beach and she walks into what looks like uh, maybe a a dharma station you kind of dingy looking totally looks like a dharma station and then oh turns out they're in miami they're not on the island that's so strange i mean it's creaky and the lighting is bad and you just i definitely felt like we were on the island and it just seems strange to me that such a such a scary looking hallway would be in a Miami condo. Right. I mean, if it's oceanfront property, you'd think that maybe the property values would be a little bit higher. There'd be slightly <laughs> better maintenance for the light bulbs, um, probably not even fluorescent lighting. Um, obviously, it was just a big fake out. They wanted us to have that question as to mm-hmm. where we're picking up the story. But one of our listeners had a very involved theory at one point that maybe it wasn't a flashback. Maybe it was a Dharma facility, possibly in Miami, but we weren't having a flashback, maybe a flash forward or a flash sideways. And flash sideways. There was something else kind of going on there. So, yeah, it was kind of an unusual open. And what struck me about that scene was the record player. It's strange that we don't actually hear the song that was playing. Right. We've had opportunities for needle drops, right? Uh, What's the song that's being used in the scene? What does it mean? But in that particular situation, they deprived us of the music. And what really struck me is that it was at the end. You know, it was the record had played all the way through Mm -hmm. and it was at the end and just sort of skipping on the inside of the the circle. And I, I don't know, especially with that theory that it might not have been a flashback. That I thought was one way that you could sort of back up that theory because you know with they love the metaphor of the record player it's, that is it's so not interesting just it's not just a prop that they like to use but they've been using the record skipping through time i mean it's been very important to the way they've described the show so why did we see it at that point at the end of its run i mean that was most likely a way to set the mood for that you know very kind of dark and foreboding scene with rachel right. but you know i love these crazy theories they can go anywhere that's with some just of so stuff. great if they actually planned it and and that plays out somehow that will be like brilliant Hmm. well anything to bring juliet back i think would make me (laughs) very happy anything else in this episode strike you yeah i I can't remember who says it to who but the figure three minutes comes up give me three minutes oh right ben wants three minutes to talk to juliet from jack right specifically says i'm only going to if i'm only going to be alive for another half an hour then what's another three minutes and certainly that's the title of an episode Mm -hmm. it was the amount of time that michael got to spend with walt with mrs clue so you know i i kind of like that they sort of repeat these phrases or these increments of time and certainly we've become very conscious of the role time plays mm-hmm. throughout Lost. Uh, a line that stuck out stuck out for me was Tom in the emergency room. Uh-huh. You know, big, tough, burly Tom saying, I don't like blood. You know, he's just kind of he's oochy about it. He's, he's kind of weak in that sense. When shows 
give us little details about characters like that that we wouldn't expect that's kind of I love that. That's my favorite thing about a show when they can give you little details about a character that somehow don't quite fit in. Right. I mean, it's not necessary to the plot, but it just sort of you know makes them deeper. It gives them more depth. The reason why I like it is because, of course, Tom is not someone who you know holds back from being violent. He he steals kids off rafts, as Jack points out, and um, he is clearly not exactly averse to causing harm. But the other thing that strikes you is now we know what happens to Tom's character. He's right. not just you know afraid of blood but he lives an alternative lifestyle you know kate you're not my type i mean exactly like you said um it's uh it, there are these little touches the little things and i think we've kind of harped on that during the season five podcast the little things we miss right. um, are really what adds the color to the show that we really really enjoy uh, there was a book in this episode right a brief history of time by stephen hawking and um, boy they weren't subtle about that either no. I, I i love going back because of what we see throughout season five how central time travel is and I was certainly one of the people who strongly advocated the fact that not the fact the position that there wouldn't be time travel in Lost mm-hmm. that they were just messing with us they're throwing that in there just to make us think they might go there and, and the whole scene with Hurley and Saeed on the beach way back when just kidding dude just kidding dude about coming from another time I said that's they're, they're using that to dismiss it. Please, theorists, stop saying that there's time travel going on. Uh-huh. And boy, how we were wrong. Um, anything else uh, you mentioned or noticed in Not in Portland? I thought the scenes between Sawyer and Kate and Carl were, were very funny. Just mm. for the, you know, from the conversation that Sawyer and Carl had about cowboying up and going back for Alex. And then the whole Wookiee prisoner gag when they went to get Carl out of, the, mm-hmm. of Room 23. And you got to love it because uh, Star Wars, again, another ongoing theme and lost we have uh, we have some like it hoth in uh-huh. season five so the this sort of these sort of geek references or these geek in jokes have certainly been a part of the show what i liked about the sawyer and carl interactions is that once again you know sawyer is giving advice to someone else about dealing with a woman but uh-huh. he's clearly talking about his own feelings yeah. and relationships with kate so i kind of like that too uh one thing that i I mean, we got to mention the bus, and it, yeah. it's not just the bus. It's it's the bus. The it's, Honolulu bus. Exactly. It's our mass transit system. Well, you see it in scenes all through the series. Like, you see see it going by in one of Anulusia's flashbacks. You see it in one of Sin and Jin and Sun's flashbacks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in it's, Korea. And it's so unmistakable. You can't mistake the Honolulu bus because of its color scheme. Well, maybe only people in Hawaii would really recognize that color scheme the sort of white bus with the gold and brown but right. because it shows up in these places all over the world i'm sure there's got to be a conspiracy conspiracy theory that that's a dharma bus because it's all <laughs> over the world but i couldn't I, I, you know i was there when they filmed that scene um that was by the medical school at mm-hmm. uh, kakaako and they actually did a lot of stunt work they had a guy hit by a bus or depicted hit by a bus flying through the air and crumpling to the ground and i was surprised that when this episode aired that they didn't use any of that that it was literally just a flash and mm-hmm. the guy was gone. I mean, certainly shocking, certainly um, a surprise, but not quite as dramatic as I had expected it to be. I guess they figured the impact was better that way. It's probably, for me, like on the top three of lost deaths. It's up there. It's up there. <laughs> it, it, probably not as high as uh, we can't even get fire. No. No. Not as good as heartburn, but still, you know, a good a good death, certainly. You know, on the side of that bus, there was a uh, Apollo bar ad. But, yeah, but you yeah. definitely don't see the bus no, long enough to see it. No, it's just a blur. In yeah. fact, I think the effect in the episode is literally just uh, an effect 
effect. I don't think they even used any part of the bus after they filmed that scene. All right, well, let's move on to our next episode, Flashes Before Your Eyes. Um, this was the kind of big episode. Well, if you force me to make a list of the top five episodes that a non-Lost fan has to see in order to get it, this is probably at least number two. Well, I mean, right up there with The Constant, which is another, you know, Desmond episode with that great phone call at the end with Desmond and Penny. Um, clearly, Desmond episodes have become very key to the overall understanding of the mythology of Lost. And this episode is very important because, again, as we just discussed, time travel becomes a key element in season five. Right. And this is where we really get a sense that they are going there. You know, sorry, Ryan, you were wrong all along. Um, time travel is going to be a factor in the show. This isn't exactly conventional time travel. This might not be time travel as you expected or understand it to happen, but it is going to be a key part of our narrative for Lost. It's just a very subtle way of rephrasing the same question that we see in season five can you change the future or can you not change the future like desmond kind of does change the future when he goes back into the bar the second night and he gets whacked on the noggin instead of the bartender so the bartender doesn't go home or doesn't go to the hospital or get a bandage on his head for the next couple of weeks something happens differently to desmond that didn't happen the first time around so in a way that's them saying that uh, yes you can change the future but then he wakes up on the island and he realizes as he cries and begs for another chance that he wishes he could go back. So in a way, that's illustrating the opposite, which is course correction, as Mrs. Hawking says, always reigns supreme. You know, the guy with the red shoes or, you know, the the antithesis of Jack's plan that whatever happened, happened, and you're going to always fulfill the fate that you were intended to. Well, she does tell Desmond that pushing the button is the only truly great thing he'd ever do. Right, and she seems certain of that. But he fails to push the button. So mm. is it failing to push the button that is great, or is it allowing 815 to land in Los Angeles that is the great thing? Oh, okay, so well, I thought, you know, when she says that pushing the button is the greatest thing you'll ever do, I thought it was that you're 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 basically ending up in the situation where you're going to be pushing the button is the greatest thing you're going to ever do. But you're right. Is it that he was there to fail to push the button and setting all in the motion everything that we see in loss because of the plane crash? Um, what is his great fate in life? Or, or yeah, maybe he wasn't supposed to miss or be late with that last button push. Maybe he, yeah, maybe pushing the button and, and allowing Jack's plan to come true will, in fact, turn out to be the greatest thing he's ever done. Oh, my. Um, well, I think we would agree that what... Uh, what Mrs. Hawking says is true, whether it's pushing the button or failing to push the button, it seems to be the most important thing um, Desmond does to become a great man, perhaps, if it's right. not saving Charlie and other things. Um, but she also says something else with a lot of certainty that kind of made me cringe, which is she just sort of says, sorry, Desmond, you're not going to spend the rest of your life with Penny. Right. And I don't think we want her necessarily to be right with that. Well, here's here's the thing about that. The rest of your life implies from this moment to the end of your life. And we do know that Desmond is on the island for three years. So that's sort of a loophole? I mean, in the sense that you're not going to spend the rest of your life with her because you're going to be missing for a while? Yeah. I, well, I, I, I kind of like how that could be used to explain that away. I mean, my fear is that, you know, basically the relationship between Desmond and Penny, I mean, we became Pesmans or Denny's, and we, <laughs> if we were shippers of any kind, we liked their relationship, especially after the constant. Um, we don't want to think about things not working out for them. I mean, at the end of season five, he's in the hospital. He's on the brink of death. Things so. look pretty grim. So... 
I guess, well, here's, oh, you know what? He won't die in the hospital because if he dies in the hospital, then he will have spent the rest of his life with Penny. I mean, he doesn't spend the rest of her life with her, but so, no, but yeah, I don't know. I think basically what we're saying is we hope she's not right about that. I hope so too. I mean, we love, you know, Penny and Desmond and the scene in this episode that really struck, stood out as far as dramatic power was when Desmond breaks up with Penny on the pier. Yeah, it's heart-wrenching. Oh, and because you see how blindsided Penny is. She's throughout been very devoted to Desmond. She has no problem with whatever he might perceive as his failings. Um, It seems like such a strong relationship, and he comes right out and says, it's just not going to work. And, I mean, Sonia Walger deserves a lot of credit for for playing that well, but it was heart-wrenching. I wasn't sure I I really wanted to to see that again. And in that scene, we also had a very significant prop here in Lost, which was the photo. And we know where that marina is. You know, that marina is in Hawaii. Yeah, so we're thinking when we're watching it, do they have a Hawaiian vacation? Do they travel to Hawaii? I mean, that would have been kind of a nice little ironic twist, but it's it's a fake out. Yeah, it's actually it, taken in London. Exactly. It could have been. It could have been the polar ice caps. It could have been anywhere that that guy pulls down in the with the backdrop. Is like ah darn, you know. <laughs> so much for the a good explanation for why Desmond and Penny were uh, behind the Ilikai Hotel in Waikiki. <laughs> but the 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 photo itself is a significant prop because there was a lot of debate uh, after the end of season two, I think, which is how many of these pictures are there. Desmond walks away with the photo, we presume, and that's what he brings to the island. He has it in the hatch, and then when the hatch blows up, he picks it up here. It survives that explosion. But, you know, Penny had one on her nightstand that's when true. she woke up. And, in fact, uh, the, the woman Naomi. with the parachute... Naomi has a copy of it exactly. stashed in her book. So how can it be that there's more than one copy? It didn't seem, at least the way that we saw things break up between the two of them, that they'd go, oh, by the way, Penny, I know I just dumped you, but let's go make a copy of this so we can remember this wonderful day in our relationship. I just don't see that happening now there was a podcast the the official lost podcast mm-hmm. the damon and carlton one where they i don't know maybe jokingly said like well there could be uh, something going on that would explain why there was more than one photograph maybe the way things went the way we saw it wasn't how it went the first time and there's a situation by which there could have been a second photo and uh-huh. you know again you figure they're just joking they're just goofing off but then when you see what happens in season five when you've had two locks running around or you've had um, people seeing themselves or the and compass Claire giving birth or the compass perfect example that no it's not a production error it's not a paradox that we're introducing but because of the way that we've visualized how time can be manipulated in lost there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for them to be more than one photo there the other reason why that photo stands out is that uh, not only do they fake the viewers out that they're not in hawaii when it's taken but that the picture in the the, the, the set that they used mm-hmm. to film that scene is actually Bishop Museum. Right. It's the exterior of Hawaiian Hall at Bishop Museum. It's a very old building. It's about 150 years old. It's also stood in for Russia in another episode. Right. In the in, During season five where uh, Saeed kills somebody for Ben and goes out to meet him, um, that sort of snowy exterior is this very same building. And I think eagle-eyed viewers would definitely notice that. I mean, it's a very distinctive building. They, right. they wanted it, like you said, because it looks old, that it could be in London and it could be a really gothic-looking structure for Russia, but if anybody's paying attention, they would definitely notice that it's the same building prominently featured in the background of two of those scenes. Now, this 
this was a strong Desmond episode, of course. He was the focus of it, but clearly at the very end of this episode, it becomes all about Charlie. Well, Charlie finds out that he's going to die, Mm -hmm. and it's just such an agonizing thing because we find it out now that he's doomed to die, but he actually doesn't die until the end of the season, and it's it's just such a horrible thing to know that Charlie is going to die and that he's aware of it, and you know, you're looking all around for ways that Charlie is going to die, and it's really just agonizing. Right. I mean, we've we've lost characters before, all the way back to Boone, and uh, some of them are shocking. Most of them are either telegraphed or at least, you know, pretty well presented. But I thought this was a neat twist by the writers for a character's death to be, prim- you know, to be predicted and for it to affect the way that he conducts himself. But uh, certainly it was it was tragic for him. You sort of like Mrs. Hawking and the guy with the red shoes. You want Desmond to be just as wrong with his prediction about Charlie. Right. And I remember when we were watching it, we're like, okay, so is the, we really wanted to look for the loophole. We like, you know, Jacob's nemesis want there to be a loophole to save dear Charlie, um, but we know how that turns out. So actually, the next few episodes during the rewatch, um, being very certain, rather than maybe questioning or hoping against hope for Charlie, what his fate is going to be is probably going to be pretty hard. Um, But, you know, Charlie was in pretty good form in this episode, and he actually kind of demonstrated a little bit of, I'd I'd say, personal weakness as well. He's jealous. He's very jealous when it comes to Claire, and Mm -hmm. I think he thinks that Desmond is moving on on his girl. Yeah, I kind of like that sort of, uh, like you had mentioned, these little personality traits that may or may not not factor into how things go, but kind of really add depth to a character. I mean, we have love triangles or quadrangles or weird shapes with the relationships on this island, but as far as Claire is concerned, I don't think she actually had any specific romantic no, rivals. No, it's all in his head, and he does the same thing with Locke earlier on. He thinks right. that Locke is romantically interested in Claire. Yeah, he's old enough to be her dad, right. but uh, he, he, he just is so possessive of her, so jealous. Um, you know, the green-eyed monster coming out, I think that, like I said, it added depth to his character. It was, it was, it was really interesting to see Although, you know, we hopefully will focus more on his positive traits moving forward. Well, I think he's he goes out pretty heroically. Mm-hmm. Definitely one of the one of the better deaths in Lost. Um, not funny or shocking, but I think um, at least relatively well presented and doing doing justice to the character. Right. Well, I guess that means we have to move on now to Stranger in a Strange uh... Land. Um, well, let's, you know, put it out there. I mean, this was officially now, according to the creators, the producers of Lost said that when they put put this episode together they knew that unless they had an end date unless they knew how far they would have to go with the story that they would be putting out you know filler like this hamburger helper like this completely ridiculous the big mystery is why jack has his where his tattoos came from well the worst part about this episode to me is that there were a lot of things they bring brought up that are clearly not going to be addressed again like juliet's brand what is the deal with Juliet's brand right? How is that a punishment? What does it mean? You're, you're, it never comes up again. Um, I, I, I'm wondering now if we think about it. Have we seen you know other scenes with Juliet's lower back where it's not even there? I mean, it literally seems like they dropped it. And right when you again going back to the creator saying that this episode where they were kind of treading water, mm-hmm. it seemed like they threw in stuff that they might be able to pay off later if they needed to have more you know to fill in. So it, it, I, I am frustrated also by sort of that. That I mean, the other thing that people focus on from this episode is Cindy kind of coming back. You know, she disappeared on the trip, the walk across the island with Anna Lucia, and here she is back. I like and that she's got scene. The kids. It was very unnerving because she's confused and she seems like she doesn't really know where she is. And when Jack yells at her, she seems genuinely wounded. And I'm wondering, you know, what happened to Cindy? What happened to her to cause this kind of this kind of mental skittishness that I sense? Right. Well, you know, he says you were taken, and she goes, "It's it's it's complicated." So uh-huh. was she taken? 
Was she already or always part of the Dharma Initiative? Was she just returning home? She definitely didn't seem as confident as somebody would be if they were already part of this machinery that maybe she was indoctrinated into the group after she was taken. Uh-huh. And we had Room 23 in the last episode. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking maybe she was brainwashed in that way. But in any case, it, it was kind of mysterious. It was kind of neat to see the uh, to see the kids again and that creepy teddy bear that they were holding on to. That's kind of turning out to be a key prop. Well, it, I, th- I thought it was just good to see them alive and see them <laughs> looking relatively healthy. I mean, it, it does lend some kind of um, credence to what what Carl says, that they gave the kids a better life. Right, that we're at least we're taking care of them to yeah. some extent. I mean, but the question is, you know, so Juliet's mark, is that ever going to turn out to be anything else? I'm personally doubtful about that. Um, but Cindy and the kids, are we going to see them again? Are they going to be part of the story? I'm not sure. I mean, this episode seems to have red herring written all over it. It's yeah. full of things that they could pick up and play with in the future, but they really didn't really have any significance or meaning when they were first plotting out Lost. So I'm a little frustrated about that. Is there anything in this episode that you liked? Well, I like the reveal that Ethan was a surgeon. You know, um, Ben tells Jack, we had an excellent surgeon and his name was Ethan. Right, great. I, I love the way Michael Emerson delivers that line because he's so angry and he's so frustrated. But it's also kind of great to realize that Ethan was a huge part of the others. Right. He's not just, uh, he's not hired hired muscle. He wasn't just a thug. He was a skilled person who contributed greatly to the others' uh, community. I kind of like the conversation that Tom and Jack had. Um, similar to, you know, Ben's line about uh, the, the surgeon, we have Jack, you know, uh, telling Tom that he thinks they're the type of people that do bad things. They kidnap mm-hmm. people. They cause great mayhem. And Tom says, well, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And um, in, a, in a similar way, kind of reminding us that our people, our side, kind of struck first. I mean, or at least we're not in this mess all on our own. The others aren't the only uh, aggressors that we're, we're both victims. We yeah. both got black marks on our record. So I really liked uh, that kind of that being pointed out. Um, though another thing that stood out for me as far as uh, telling us about the others was when Alex was explaining to Jack about what was going on with Juliet. And she says, we deal very harshly with people who kill one of our own. An eye for an eye, she says. Yeah, an eye for an eye. And I don't know. I mean, the others have up until this point kind of given the impression that they serve a greater good, a higher purpose. They're at least. kind of hippy-dippy, and at you least. don't expect that from... Right. Them. An eye for an eye sounds very primitive, very crude, a very not like what they were sort of saying that they were. I mean, God loved you as he loved Jacob or something. You know, how is that in the same? I guess that's a biblical rule, though, an right. eye for an eye. Right. I don't know, though. It did seem to bring a darker you know, tint to the other's community. And even over the next couple of seasons, I'm not sure if it fits in with the way we've learned that they've conducted themselves. Is it mm-hmm. going to be something else from this episode that's just going to be dropped and never forgotten? Um, anything else that you actually liked? Well, Sawyer is back in top nicknaming oh, form. absolutely. Captain Bunny Killer. <laughs> that's got to be one of my favorite Sawyer nicknames ever because it just evokes such a great mental picture. Well, I, I mean, there's already a couple of bands out there that use that as their really? name. Yeah, you can go listen to the Captain Bunny Killers. Um, but he had uh, Sally Slingshot again, you know, for Alex, and uh-huh. Carl has to explain what her real name is. He calls uh, Magellan. You know, you have a map that I that we don't know about. <laughs> but um, the, what I liked was the conversation with Carl about Bobby, who Bobby is. Right. Well, Carl has no concept of who the Brady Bunch was. Mm-hmm. And we thought, it, you know, the others must be isolated. And that's why Carl doesn't have any idea who the Brady Bunch was. But we know that Carl, I mean, that Ben has contact with the outside world. Yeah, he watches so, the World Series. I mean, he they they do seem to be aware of pop culture 
counterculture elements. So. Right. So I think the whole um, Brady Bunch conversation is more about a general generational gap than a culture right. gap. He's, he's just not old enough to know about that. I, I, I think it's a much more simpler explanation. Um, was there anything, I mean, what do you have to say about the flashback in this episode that we got rid of okay. in just one line? Can we talk about Biling? Okay. Uh, hundreds of Asian American actresses who needed the work and they pick Bai Ling. Mm. Why? She's just a train wreck of bad hair <laughs> and hooker shoes. Oh, no, and, no. and we're supposed to think that Achara is probably tortured because she has this gift. Mm-hmm. I mean, how would you feel if you walked around being able to size up people, you know, just out of nowhere? She's supposed to be tortured. Does Bai Ling look tortured to you? I, I, she doesn't look tortured. I mean, she doesn't even look like she belongs in Thailand. She doesn't even look like she knows she's in an episode of Lost. I mean, <laughs> I think a Muppet might have a little better depth to conveying torture and, and, and pain than, than she certainly does. And what I find fascinating, of course, is when this episode first aired and all of the people were slagging on Bai Ling, I actually had no idea who she was. I didn't realize what the big she's deal was. She's the Chinese Paris Hilton. <laughs> right. So now it makes perfect sense. And I, I got to admit, it, the, the flashback was not a strong one. And we have the the producers now, the creators of Lost, backing us up that this was probably not the best use of our time. <laughs> now, um, but we shouldn't slag on Biling too much. She, I, I checked her on IMDb. She still has an acting career. Uh-huh. She's starred in, I'm sure, the Oscar-overlooked picture Crank 2. And, yeah, and she played a prostitute. So uh. what a wide range of, 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 of acting abilities she has. Um, I do remember when we saw the scene on the beach, you know, Jack and yeah. uh, Biling or whatever, Achara, um, with the kite. I think that was in the promo the preview uh-huh. the week before and everybody was like oh my god there's someone else on the island yeah. it's another nikki and paulo we're still stinging from nikki and paulo showing up and they were going to do that to us again so at least in, in in terms of good news uh she was just left in the past in thailand i don't think that she's going to come back I but not. you know what I, there, I have i have a complimentary thing to say about that scene um Double-sided tape. I've I've never seen double-sided tape work so hard in my life. There should be an Emmy category for that. Excellent work in the beach scene. I was on the edge of my seat. Okay, well, that was Stranger in a Strange Land, and that means that's our two cents and then some about these three episodes. It's more like a buck thirty. Yeah, when we come back, uh, we'll hear what you have to say in You, you All, Everybody. Now it's time to hear from you all, everybody, and we're going to start with Rich and Christine. Hey, Ryan and Jen. Uh, this is Rich in Cleveland from the Rare Call. Very much enjoying the rewatch of season three, which I'm a big advocate of. And um, first episode, not in Portland. Just a, a great episode all the way around, Juliet. Um, I know I commented on the blog about the strangeness of the opening scene. And I had some massive conspiracy theory, as usual. But now what I think it is is that Juliet was crying because her research wasn't working. And it was just the usual fake-out done by the producers. And that really they were just in Miami. But that Ethan was the one who came in and did something to Rachel and made the, the experiment actually turn out okay. So that was one idea I had about that, and um, in, also in that episode, my antenna really pricked up when Juliet mentioned about uh, inverting the numbers. That was really cool. Uh, Flashes Be- Before Your Eyes, another great episode. 
the only thing I want to say about that is um, when Mrs. Hawking tells Desmond that if he doesn't make the right decision, then we're all dead. And I just want to say that um, these are the stakes on Lost. It's life and death for everyone. So love the show. Great as always. And defend the island. Bye. Hi, Ryan and Jen. I just got done watching the rewatch, and I wanted to share some thoughts about a few of the episodes. Not in Portland. Um, I want to know why in the very first scene is Ethan coming down the hall in Rachel's apartment. It makes me think something much bigger is going on that maybe we don't even know about yet. And um, it reminded me of season one when Claire and, Claire and Thomas when he breaks up with her, I always wondered why Thomas changed his mind and left Claire when he seemed to be so in love with her and this could be the best thing ever and I love you, Claire. And I always wondered if maybe Dharma or Widmore or someone we don't even know about the big picture threatened him or bribed him or paid him off to leave Claire so she would come to the island. So that makes me think maybe Ethan had had some contact with Rachel and have bribed her or convinced her to get Juliet to go to the island, and maybe she wasn't even pregnant. Now, Stranger in a Strange Land, Atura, I loved Atura. They should have made her a series regular. Just kidding. I, <laughs> the one I think they should have made a, a series regular is the sheriff because I thought she was very um, strange with her her strange voice and her her little ponytails on the side of her head. They reminded me of Revenge of the Nerds. So I wish they would have kept her around. But um liked all three of the episodes and looking forward to the next one. Thank you for your podcast. Bye-bye. Mahalo for those calls. Now, Rich and Christine with thoughts on Not in Portland. Uh, Rich moved on to Flashes Before Your Eyes while Christine had thoughts on Stranger in a Strange Land. Now, both of them picked up on Nathan in the hallway and that there might be something else going on there. What do you think about Rich's thought that they were messing with Juliet's sister or Juliet's experiment there? Well, I, I know that's what we're supposed to think, but then the others really do have fertility problems and it seems like if they did have so many problems with pregnant women it would be really kind of outside their capabilities to get Rachel pregnant. Yeah, if they can't get someone pregnant on the island how would they get a woman pregnant who has cancer? Right. Um, and it, you know, it's sure that it could have been a ruse just to make it go well so they get Juliet for other purposes but they did need Juliet for fertility issues. Yeah. That is her specialty and that is a real issue on the island but I do think that I agree that we're supposed to think that Nathan was up to something, but uh, I don't necessarily think that it was a ruse. I mean, maybe he was just watching or, or being a part of the medical team. Maybe he was a nurse for uh, the sister, um, but just sort of keeping an eye for on them for the others. But again, good thoughts. Now, on uh, Flashes Before Your Eyes, Rich in Cleveland kind of says that he felt then when Mrs. Hawking said, we're, we're all going to die, she meant all in the global sense. I, I I think they've affirmed that. Actually. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think so too. She's not just saying us or the others or the you know the people we're all concerned about are going to die. It really sounded like, and I think the producers have said when he said she said that she meant we're all going to die. So certainly something more to that. And Christine, a big fan of Atra, but not really. <laughs> um, but the sheriff, we didn't talk about the sheriff. What do you think about that character? That that's strange. It 
it's it seems to me it's mentioned in passing much later on i think in this season that she died in the beach raid at the end of season three right they just sort of ran down a list of these these other others that are no longer with us but apart from that this was a character that had a very strong prominent role as far as what you know what she did for the others she apparently adjudicated or investigated things yeah she going was on, the law and then she's gone so yeah. I, yeah, that is true. I don't know whatever happened with it. Did, did she remind you of Revenge of the Nerds? That's an interesting. No, I like that movie. But, but she did play Joan Crawford's daughter in Mommy Dearest. Well, there you go, and that's probably <laughs> a, a more a more closer role. Well, let's move on to more feedback episode by episode, starting with not in Portland. Jonine in Afghanistan writes: wow. Looking back at these episodes, I miss Juliet even more, as this is her, is her first flashback, and we know her fertility research is important to the island in some way. And this was a good episode to show where she comes from. Her choice to leave her sister, I think, has become a theme for Juliet. This is also the first time we meet Richard, and I think from here on, I am going to pay attention to his character until the new season starts. I know there isn't much Richard, but there might be some clues we can find. Absolutely. I mean, uh, as we follow the rest of season three, we're going to pay a lot more attention to this guy than we did the last time around. Um, Her choice to leave her sister being a theme for Juliet. I mean, it's true that she's motivated basically by wanting to go back to her family. Well, her parents are divorced, so I kind of got the feeling that Rachel was really all she had left. But we see in season five that she wants to take the sub and go back to the mainland, even though her family's not around yet, I guess, in the 70s. But she does seem to make the choice not to to be there as well. But I don't know. That's, that's an interesting observation. Um, I should mention Jonine uh, sent us a picture. She's actually in Afghanistan, and thank you for all you do, serving our country. Yes, but thank you. there was a uh, Ambassadors of Hollywood tour going through, and her troop or her group actually got to meet Cynthia Watros there. She was awesome. touring. I think it was for a CW thing, actually. But she did get to ask her about Lost, and of course, Cynthia Watros was just kind of coy and said, well, maybe, but still, uh, very awesome. Very nice. Uh, Jen from Chicago writes, when I first saw this episode, I was also really confused because I didn't think that Juliet and Sarah really looked alike. However, with the hindsight of future episodes, when we see that Ben is in love with Juliet, I think that Ben just came up with that line as a way of undermining the budding relationship between Jack and Juliet. I think Ben saw that there was a growing attraction between them and became jealous by telling Jack that Juliet was part of a larger scheme to lull Jack into complicity and break him. Ben is essentially making Jack question the authenticity of Juliet's kindness and tenderness toward him. So that's a fair thought. Yeah, I don't think that necessarily came up in this episode, but you can sort of see how that plays out. Andy in Minnesota writes, Why was Richard Alpert the one to recruit Juliet? What reasons would he have for even going off the island? I think this is the only time you have ever seen him off the island. I wonder if this is somehow connected to the fact that Juliet is the only flashback we see in the incident where Jacob does not appear. The other is obviously room 23. This is one of those mysteries I'm afraid they will not explain. I'm not convinced this is solely Ben's idea. The other thing I picked up on is that it only seems to affect men or boys. Carl and Sawyer were obviously affected by it, and we were all led to believe that Walt has been there. Why did it not phase Kate or Alex at all? In fact, they barely gave it a second glance. Uh, well, first of all, I think Richard Alpert was off the island again because he was tracking yeah, to recruit Locke. Locke yeah. So clearly recruiting is a key part of Richard's uh, duties, despite the fact that he also has a leadership role on the island. He goes in person to see who he's going to bring back. But I like what Andy was saying about Room 23. I, it's true. Kate, you know, kind of has 
has to snap Sawyer out of it. He's in, he's entranced yeah. by that slideshow the same way that Carl is. I don't I don't know. Do you think that was significant? That gender plays a role in it. That that Walt was in there and and um, Carl was in there, but it's not used. I mean, I I, I had supposed that maybe. Uh, Cindy had been in there, but maybe not. Well, we know that pregnant women die, and we know that Ben wanted Carl nowhere near Alex because of that. So I think maybe Room 23 is kind of a device designed to keep the boys away. Oh, sort of like, I don't know, killing their libido, maybe, or just sort of Something lulling like them into uh, into a real passive state so they're not, you know, messing around with getting women pregnant. That's an interesting thought. But I like that observation. Uh, Kim C. writes, I really love Not in Portland and see it as a resolution of the meanie arc. I love how Ben succeeded in breaking Jack, but not in the way he planned. Jack does finally let go of Kate. Believing she does not return his feelings, he is angry and wants nothing more to do with her. True. However, he he also does so out of love, risking his life for her happiness. This mirrors what happens in the episode A Tale of Two Cities and the plot of the book from which the title was taken. Ironically, and without getting into a debate over who loves whom more, Kate does seem to return Jack's feelings as witnessed by Sawyer and Juliet when she says goodbye to him on the walkie. So, yes, kind of acknowledging there is some shipper elements of this episode. Well, the scene for me, the scene where Jack is talking to Kate on the walkie and Kate is telling him the story that um, he told her on the beach. You know, Sawyer is kind of looking at them and, it, you know, his face is betraying really sad feelings like he knows that it's not over between Jack and Kate. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of the season five finale when Juliet realizes that Sawyer might still have feelings for Kate. Right. Certainly there are some mirrors there. I mean, that might be inherent in any uh, love triangle kind of scenario. But yeah, that 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 uh, were we with the characters in their heads as we're observing these other two people, um, one of whom may not be, you know, returning the, the affections that we want. I, I certainly I certainly agree that that was kind of a strong scene for that episode. Let's move on to flashes before your eyes. Ron in New Jersey writes, this was the watershed episode for this series and my favorite ranking right up there with the constant and the variable. Mm-hmm. It's sets up everything that follows time travel and the flashing the title could have a couple of meanings what you supposedly see right before you die and the flashes the lost you see when they jump through time if the writers were that prescient that's amazing if not i don't think this episode would have had the same impact i can see viewers scratching their heads and asking what the heck are they talking about course correction absolutely i mean yes this episode sort of was our map for season five and possibly season six that uh, we didn't know it at the time I and mean, we we certainly sensed along with the constant of the variable that these were key episodes in the mythology of lost but um had if it, it is great looking back on it and seeing how much they were really telling us back then bonita in atlanta writes was charles whitmore's humiliation of desmond part of the plan for him to get back to the island like hawking trying to dissuade desmond from buying the ring are they charles and hawking working for the same purpose or on opposite sides i don't i don't really know it's it's hard to tell it seems as if they would be enemies because there is some kind of relationship there that went sour Mm -hmm. now that we know the the future or the past actually of those characters so it's hard to imagine widmore and hawking working side by side well actually i think that we're at least especially after what we see in season five where they meet outside of the hospital for example where um, they both kind of are are expressing how much they've sacrificed to put things in the right order to set things right they're both 
I think we're we we are told in season five that they're on the same side, and I think Bonita is right in the sense that uh, Charles is, makes Desmond feel like less of a man to he, so he wants to prove himself. At the same time, Hawking says he's not going to have the nerve to ask Penny to marry him. I think they both are in service of the same goal. I think they were on mm-hmm. the same side. Russell writes, this is one of the best and most important episodes of the entire series. It introduces us to the time travel element and the concept of course correction. We meet Hawking for the first time, which has so much more meaning now that we know where she fits in the grand scheme. Or do we? But I am confused on how she knew about the man with the red shoes incident before it happened. It was my understanding that she doesn't have psychic abilities per se, but that she was able to predict certain events based on what she read in Faraday's journal. That's how she knew of Desmond and the events that took place on the island after she left. But in this episode, the red shoes incident makes it seem like she knows more than island related information. Interesting. Well, you know, I hadn't thought about that journal, but I think a lot of people have made the conclusion that, you know, because she does kill her son as a younger woman and mm-hmm. gets the notebook, that she does have sort of a roadmap as to how future the future will play out. But there is no way that that notebook had the accident in London where a woman, where a guy with red shoes gets hurt. No, so, I just, I think she's seen it happen a couple of times already. So this kind of goes back to what Desmond was experiencing. That's something that, that, that she was probably experiencing, but she understood what was happening the whole right. time. That's that's certainly that's a good question though. I mean, we know that Mrs. Hawking clearly knows a lot more about how things are supposed to happen, how things might go wrong. So I guess that's the only explanation. I don't think it came from the journal. Mike in Virginia writes, "The marina scene in which Desmond and Penny have their picture taken, is that a foreshadowing of the big scene in Los Angeles in season 5 where Ben threatens to kill Penny and gets beaten to a pulp by Desmond? Watching this episode now, I immediately thought of that season 5 scene. It's very sad to me to know that Mrs. Hawking words are so sure and definitive when she states that pushing the button is the only worthwhile thing Desmond will ever do and that he does not belong with Penny. She seems so resolute but I hope against hope that she is wrong about this. Yeah, you and me too. <laughs> we all hope that she's wrong about that but yeah, the the, the picture the, the very significant prop with uh, Desmond and Penny at a marina even though they weren't at a marina right. and these pivotal scenes in season 5 take place at a marina. Was that intentional? I know, it would be kind of beautifully ironic if, if that picture does have something to do with with what happened in Los Angeles. Right. The only thing is it's not the same marina. It's clearly not the Los Angeles marina in the picture, and it's definitely a different marina where that confrontation takes place. But yeah, that's kind of a neat way to tie things together. CB writes, while everyone loves this Desmond-centric episode, I was sad after watching this episode because of the last scene when we first discovered that our beloved Charlie's going to die. But what some may not have realized is that Charlie has been dodging bullets through the entire series beginning in the very first episode i present to you the nine lives of charlie (laughs) one charlie survives a plane crash two charlie steps on a beehive three charlie makes it out alive from the cave collapse four charlie almost falls to his death on a broken rope bridge five charlie is hung by a tree by ethan six charlie is saved by desmond from drowning when he tries to save claire and seven is not struck by lightning later eight charlie is saved by desmond and doesn't hit his head on a rock when trying to get a bird for claire and charlie is saved by desmond and narrowly escapes nine rousseau's arrow in the neck i never realized this until i went back and watched the series over again and about how he eventually meets his demise i still can't talk about it it's the only time i ever cried during Lost. Oh man, I hear you there. And yeah, he, he, I completely forgot, for example, about the cave yeah, collapse and the too. rope bridge. Um, I think it's fair to say that 
many of our characters have escaped death, but because of what happens from this episode forward, and we're very conscious of how he escapes death, I mean, it gets pointed out, it becomes part of the conversation uh-huh. that we forget about all of these past brushes with death. So I thought that was a very fun email. Well, finally, on this episode, we go back to the Lost Line for a voicemail from Dan. Hello, this is Dan and Nikki from the suburbs of Chicago. Long-time listeners, first-time callers. Uh, we're calling specifically about the episode flashes before your eyes and uh we were sitting and talking about it and we think what happens with desmond you know being directly on top of the source of the swan station's anomaly when he turns to failsafe getting catapulted back along his own timeline and having to relive it on how he tried to change it and then eloise hawking came and said no you can't we think this might be very similar in season six to what will happen to the other Lusties, to Jack and Kate and Hurley, they'll get catapulted backwards on their timeline because they were right there at source when the uh, if the bomb exploded, and that would explain why we see you know movies of Hurley in a chicken shack saying I got back from Australia because the when they got kicked back they changed something. And now it's going to be season six correcting everything. So just wanted to uh, shoot that out there uh, as proof that perhaps maybe the writers have this planned all along. Uh, And uh, we love you guys. Thanks for doing the show. And we'll be listening. Bye. Thanks for your call, Dan. And, uh, you know, I like the way you're thinking. And as we discussed in our segment of the show, there's a lot of parallels between what's going on in Flashes Before Your Eyes and what we see in Season 5. A lot of the big questions that are hanging over our heads during this long, dark hiatus. Well, it does bring up the question again about Desmond. Is his failure to push the button is is that what's important, or is it pushing the button that's important? Right. If Jack's plan works and the plane doesn't crash, that has to be because Desmond wasn't there to cause the event from happening. So uh, a lot of other folks had the exact same thinking along those lines. It's really, I mean, I think this episode is as important as everyone's saying it is. Um, early, Ernie in Illinois kind of uh, depicted it as well. One thing about what Dan said that got me thinking, though, is he says um, De- Desmond was blasted back along his own timeline. He was uh-huh. in, what, 2004, right. and he goes back to 96. But if what we see at the end of season five happens the same way then they'd have to go forward Forward, because they're in 1977 they'd have to i don't know somehow meet up with themselves in in i don't know that's when you start drawing these lines and these loops and these timelines that personally just give me a migraine well finally i guess we have to move on to stranger in a strange land bonina in atlanta writes i didn't much care for it the first time and nearly fast forwarded through much (laughs) of it but some things grabbed me this time best bits were on the island stuff but the juxtaposition of juliet's brand with Jack's was pretty cool. My favorite exchange, Jack says, I'd be much more impressed with you people if you had a good surgeon. Ben replies, we had an excellent surgeon. His name was Ethan. My big question, Carl says, we give them a better life, better than yours. What does this mean? How? Where or when are they? Right. I mean, we we definitely picked up on the same lines and the branding kind of parallel. But yeah, the 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 line that uh, Carl says about them taking people to help them to give them a better life. Uh, now, you know, I said I don't think we're going to see any of this stuff again. But there's a whole bunch of them that are still waiting at the temple. There's there's a significant population of people who throughout season five have been hiding out. We've not been paying any attention to them, but we're there. I guess it's fair to assume that if there are still kids on the island, if Cindy the stewardess is still around, then that. That's where she is. You know, that's the when and where, and Mm -hmm. maybe we'll see them again. Gavin from Pearl City, right here in Honolulu, writes, 
Ugh, I can't defend this episode, but if you fast forward through the flashback scenes, it improves from terrible to somewhat watchable. One question I had is, if Ben is so in love with Juliet, why is he so willing to let her die until Jack coerces him to save her? We know Ben is very possessive of Juliet, yet he lets her be judged by Isabel and almost executed, only to be saved by a last-minute pardon. Also, why are Cindy and the other people watching Jack in his cage? Is it because they believe Jack will be their future leader? I'm not really sure Ben is really fully aware of what's going on with Juliet. No? Well, actually, because he's still in surgery and not doing very well. Right. But I think that's... But he still was able to issue the order to get her... I think she, I think he's aware of what's happening. So I think Gavin's making a good point. Is he, Did he basically give up on Juliet because Juliet betrayed her and came up with the plan to kill, you know, to kill him with uh, Jack? Is that why he's given up? Because otherwise, yes, we've seen him do all kinds of horrible things because of his crush on Juliet. So I think Gavin kind of raises a good point. Yeah. As far as why why do you think Cindy or what are, what are they watching? I said that I think they were just there to watch the trial. But if they're there to watch Jack, why is Jack worth watching? I, I don't know, because he I don't know. That's that's a really good question. <laughs> Maybe because he's he could be a candidate. I'm not sure. Excellent question. Jan from France writes the most useless episode. <laughs> no explanation why Jack wanted this tattoo so badly and what it's supposed to mean. Isabel looks like a future important character, but never came back. The tail section coming to see Jack. I am sure we will never hear about that anymore. Juliet marked. I thought it would be used at least during the Dharma stuff so they will know she was an other or something, hmm. but no. And Kate and Sawyer and Carl, well, we know where they are going and going to do. This episode doesn't bring anything here either, so in conclusion, is useless. Well, I think a lot of people kind of shared that conclusion, yeah, but kinda. I you know it was neat. He pointed out that they could have used the mark later because she's been going around. The question is, who are these people who come back to the island? Are they important? Um, I guess it wouldn't have been to her benefit to show them the mark because clearly the mark is a bad thing. But there could have been some way for that to be given, you know, some pre- some prominence in season five. But they, they they didn't take it advantage of it. But yes, conclusion useless. Thank you, Yan. Kim C writes an email. I do not hate Stranger in a Strange Land as so many people do. It is frustrating because I think it could have been a really great episode but it feels like pieces are missing from it. Achara is probably meant to be mysterious, but comes across as cheesy. It seems out of character for Jack to carry on such a casual fling with her, unless he was trying to get over his divorce, but the time of the flashback is never made clear. It is just as inexplicable why he then gets so angry with her for hiding her gift. Will we ever know the real story behind her gift? I don't think so. (laughs) I thought the conversation between Kate and Sawyer about leaving Jack was well-written and acted. I especially love the montage at the end. The photography and the music are extremely... Extremely beautiful. Yeah, I really do like that montage at the end. Yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly redeems a lot of everything else going on in the episode. There were there were little moments, I think, that stood out in Strangers in the Strange Land. They were just so overshadowed by that particular flashback. Keith from Tampa writes, Apparently, I am one of the few people that love this episode. Mm. I'm surprised by all the disappointment over it. The quote of Jack's tattoo foreshadowed unlocks reveal, but the response to Isabel after her translation had the most impact and meaning in this episode. In Thailand, he was lost and trying to find himself the tattoo was a gift a reminder that whenever he again becomes lost he remembers his duty and his destiny as a leader and the consequences that role brings so when he stated that's not what it means regarding the definition of his tattoo it was a very reaffirming moment he showed courage honor and integrity by sacrificing himself for kate and sawyer and in defending juliet 
he was not broken by his circumstances he was declaring make no mistake i am a leader a good man and what i did was right when she first introduced herself isabel seemed arrogant and somewhat skeptical of jack her final glance was of respect almost a reverence for him friend or foe it really seemed as though her visit had less to do with juliet's trial as that was just a formality and more to do with assessing jack's value as an asset or his formidability as an enemy well there you go a defender of this episode and you know keith does make a good point as far as um the unlock reveal and someone who walks among us who is not of us i kind of like that a little although i i would sincerely express doubts that they had that really that connection in mind when they wrote it but the, the the interactions with isabel also i think relatively interesting you know she does seem to be very interested in Jack and um, the way he sort of stands up to her at the very end on the beach as they're evacuating. I thought that was a good moment as well. The only reason why that still leads to frustration is that Isabel turns out to not be. Yeah, we never either. see her again. And right. you know they could have they could have done a lot with Isabel and and just to know that she died in the beach raid without even seeing it on camera is a little frustrating. <laughs> right. We did get a lot of great stuff these last couple of weeks. Not just commentary on these last three episodes, but even people picking up on conversation threads of previous podcasts. And we love it all. We appreciate and read it all, even though as we move now well into the hour that we can uh, include it all. We want to mention Lee from Los Angeles left a voicemail about Mr. Echo being repentant. And we had a very thoughtful email from Dave about Michael Giacchino's music. And we're a big fan of that. So thanks for those comments. We'd also like to take a moment to thank listeners who recently gave us great feedback over at the iTunes Music Store. A big I mahalo to mm-hmm. Spiffy Cat, Lost and Tonic, Mike in Virginia, SFN Mubi, Dolly Fan Joy, Aqua Boy 1976 at Sophie Mecca of Speed Carol from Boston and Sani123 thanks, thanks a lot everybody in any case great feedback all around and we're glad once again that you're taking this trip down memory lane with us and remember that every email that you send whether or not we can include it in our podcast enters you to win a limited edition Benjamin Linus bobblehead doll which was a Comic Con exclusive item from Entertainment Earth or you could also win a copy of the season 3 and season 4 albums from the Others Lost Band and that's the great band based in Massachusetts that writes a song based on every episode of Lost. So looking ahead, our next scheduled podcast is set for October 18th or maybe a little later. We will cover season three, episodes 10, 11, and 12. That's Trisha Tanaka is dead for Hurley, Mm -hmm. Enter 77 for Saeed, and Par Avion for Claire. As we mentioned at the top of the show, even if that podcast does get delayed, we have a lot of fresh news to share from the Lost event at the Hawaii International Film Festival, but we still need your thoughts observations new discoveries whatever you have to say about the next few episodes so please pop in those dvds as soon as you can and then send your feedback for us to include in the show you can send your thoughts via email to lost at hawaiiup.com post it on the blog at hawaiiup.com slash lost or call the lost line at 815-310-0800 Coming up in about four minutes, we will have the forward cabin where we hide production news, rumors, spoilers, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But first, as a special treat to clear the aisles leading to the forward cabin, here's a little musical interlude. It's a song by The Other's Lost Band. It's based on one of the episodes we just discussed, Not in Portland, and the song is Hit by a Bus. To get off of the island Three years have been too long She wants to get off of the island She was brought there by Ethan Rob When it comes to the fate of Ben Linus She wanted him there But now she wants him alive She 
but not in Portland And now she's helping Kate and Sawyer survive Hit by a bus, hit by a bus The domination hit my husband was hit by a bus by the Others Lost Band based on the Season 3 episode Not in Portland. You can find more information on the band and hear more of their music at www.myspace.com slash band. Now, you know the opening of that song with the pianos and the yeah. drums? It sounds just like the Apple commercials, you know, the TV commercials where they say they oh, you, there's an yeah, app for that? That's what it reminds so me of. So just hearing that music kind of makes me like, do you need to push a button to save the world? There's an app for that. <laughs> Do you need to blow up a bunch of others at a tent? There's an app for that. I don't know. I just loved it. In any case, now it's spoiler time. So final warning, if you don't want to know, you need to switch us off. Now, last week, we had a lot of stuff to report. And some of you actually said a little too much. Well, today, we just have a few morsels to whet your appetite. Now, last week, they were filming at Hawaii Medical Center West. That's uh, formerly St. Francis Hospital. And as you recall, last week, we talked about Kate going into labor. So you can guess what this scene is. It's Claire giving birth. And once again, Kate is with her. I think that's kind of key uh-huh. because she was there on the island when that happened. But the biggest piece of news to come out of that scene was that Ethan was there. Oh. Everyone's favorite creepy guy, that's William Mapother, is back. And he was dressed as a doctor, Dr. Goodwin, in fact. So, you know, when you're tr- trying to wonder how they're going to bring all of these characters together and may or may not have, uh, you know, course correction taking place, well, Ethan and Kate, once again, just like on the island, having an interest or an involvement in Aaron's birth. Although I'm not sure. Is it going to be Aaron or not? Um, They also built a very big temple set at the Diamond Head uh, Film Studio by by Kapilani Community College. And my very good friend is always reporting on what they're up to, a lot of construction. And so they had a lot of scenes filmed there last week and this week. And uh, the actors spotted were Jack, uh, Kate, Saeed, Hurley, Jin, Miles, and Sire, essentially basically the crew that were Mm -hmm. at the hatch construction site but the big question that we can't answer at this point is when they are we might know where they are at the temple but we don't know when Um, but they were being held captive or at least uh, being watched by 
others or the missing others that we mentioned earlier in this podcast that were uh, apparently hiding out at the temple. And uh, I was actually there when they broke for lunch and were filming some scenes and they poured out the others kind of dressed in reddish brown drab clothes, sort of the colors we've seen them in before. Many of them carrying these long rifles, kind of wooden stock rifles, very old looking rifles. And uh, they did film an interesting sounding scene, even though we couldn't see anything. Let's hear a clip. Yes, cut. A little treat that I thought I'd share comes from an anonymous (laughs) source, a visiting fan who will eventually post these videos on YouTube, but you're just going to have to watch out for those. Um, So there was that scene. There were also scenes that, uh, according to a proud uh, auntie, I'll say, was featuring a couple of kids, specifically a boy and a girl. So. I think we've got Zach and Emma, and uh, I do get the feeling, at least from the way that this person was describing the work they got, that the boy had a lot more to do than the girl did, and uh, I feel bad for the boy. But in any case, children also back in the picture. On Thursday, they were in Manoa Valley, very familiar territory for them at Paradise Park, uh, the Manoa Falls Trailhead, and uh, we had fans there. Eric, a good friend of mine who hikes everywhere and does like to go up there in the morning, and uh, Carmel visiting from Israel, who we met actually. Actually hey, checked it out, and uh, they had built the temple in the jungle. Actually, it looked like the other side of the temple set that was built at the Diamond Head uh, Studio. So, in any case, they had that set up down sort of where the the, the cages actually used to be, and uh, they saw Jack in a bloody jumpsuit. So, I do think this kind of picks up right where we saw at the end of season five, where yeah. Saeed is bleeding and they're taking care of him. And uh, Hurley was there. Uh, Carmel says that he was wearing a red shirt, oh. but that might have just been what he was wearing under the the. The, right. the jumpsuit. I hope the red shirt doesn't mean anything. Of course, Kate, Jin, Saeed was there. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, Cindy, the stewardess. Oh, so cool. She's back. I mean, we did mention in our last podcast that she was present on the airplane, but she is also present on the island, whatever time frame we are in, where our characters from the uh, hatch collapse have ended up. And uh, finally, Friday, yesterday, they were out at the old beach camp. Yes, the most familiar set for Lost at, out at Papailoa by uh, Haleiwa. And um, fans visiting from Alabama reported in, and they saw Ben, Locke, Son, Frank, and Ilana there. So these are the temple people um, returning to the beach camp. But uh, let's just say Locke was not himself in those scenes. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's the unlock in that scene. It might be our old and possibly lost friend. But in any case, those are the filming updates for this week. So I guess that means that's it for this episode of The Transmission. Remember, your homework is to watch Season 3, Episodes 10, 11, and 12, and to get your feedback to us by Friday, October 16th, even though we might push that podcast back, depending on how great things go at the Hawaii International Film Festival. This show is powered by you. You power us. So please remember to send us an email, comment on the blog, call the Lost Line Get in touch with us any way you can. We love hearing from you. Email us at lost at hawaiiup.com. Comment on the blog at hawaiiup.com slash lost. Call 815-310-0808 or find us on Twitter at Hawaii and at Mrs. Hawaii. We'll be back in two weeks to continue our Lost Season 3 review or to share news from the Hawaii International Film Festival. Either way, we'll also bring you more news from the show's production right here in Honolulu. So see you then, folks. Enjoy. Stay Stay lost. lost. Aloha. Aloha.
This podcast is a proud member of the Lost Podcasting Network. Get all your favorite Lost podcasts in one feed at lostcasts.blogspot.com. Maybe it wasn't a flashback. Maybe it was a flash forward or a flash sideways or, you know, it could have been (laughs) any of those things. (laughs) That was cool.